hell that I was in, I'd do anything to be better. I thought like a lunatic. You kind of just have like that little bit of hope that it will get better. You're gonna make it. This began my surrender. I am a witness of my own growth. It's a life beyond your wildest dreams, and I just have to say, it works if you work it. My story, that's what I share. You're listening to Far From Finished, a weekly podcast where we share new, real-life stories of hope and triumph, told by the people who live them. Today's story comes to us from... My name is Tracy Small, and my sobriety date is September 7, 2015. Growing up, I was born in Florida, and uh, my parents were married, but when I was about a year old, my mother uh, divorced my biological father to move to Pennsylvania to be with her parents because he was not working to support myself, my sister, and my mother. Um, I had very little to no contact with him my entire life, which created a feeling of abandonment for me. I just didn't know I had that feeling of abandonment. My mother remarried a, a wonderful man when I was about five years old, and he adopted and raised my sister and I, and we also had a stepbrother from his previous marriage um, who had some mental illness. So there's a lot of focus on him growing up as opposed to my sister and I. My father's, now my stepfather, who was you know, now my father, um, he was, a, like I said, he was a wonderful man. They had a very good marriage. Um, but there was a lot of emphasis on looks and money and looks and money. And it was a very upper-class Jewish family and a very upper-class Jewish surroundings that we were raised in. And it, it, it created a sense of an insecurity with me because I was always a little bit heavier. So I was told a lot of times, you're so pretty, but you're so pretty, but you should lose weight. You're so pretty, but you should, you know, get involved in sports or you're pretty and you're funny, but... And I held on to the butt rather than all the other things about me that, that I should have seen. Um, but other than that, I had a very good childhood. And I went to school. I was an okay student. I had some, some good friends, but I kind of circulated around all the different cliques and all the different types of kids that I was growing up with. Um, I went to college. I did well. I did not uh, drink. I did not use drugs. I stayed away from, from both of those scenes. And I did not pick up my first drink until I was probably 19 or 20. I definitely partied with my friends. Um, but I, it wasn't excessive. It was weekend drinking. We smoked pot. Uh, very social. But other things in my life, I was definitely doing in excess. I was eating in excess, shopping in excess, you know, watching TV more than I should have, working in excess. Um, I, I started a career very early in the insurance industry that has carried me through the past 20 years. I, it's a family business that you know we've all done very well in. Um, I, I met a guy when I was in my mid-20s, and he drank a lot. And he introduced me to ecstasy. And at that time, my doctor had introduced me to diet pills because I wanted to lose weight. And I, my relationship with him was not healthy. He drank a lot. He was very verbally abusive. And he had his own issues. But 
I was so insecure with myself that uh, I stayed in that relationship. And he was very good looking. He was very successful. And I thought that's who I was supposed to be with. We put on a good outwardly appearance. Um, I started drinking more with him and I was definitely abusing these prescription diet pills. Eventually I just, oh, and he introduced me to cocaine. And I did that maybe a handful of times. And at the time I realized I liked it so much, so I stopped. You know, back then in my 20s, somehow I knew to stop that, but I didn't know what was going to come. So eventually uh, he wanted to get married. My father now had been diagnosed with cancer, and I wanted him to see one of his kids get married traditionally and not, you know, the justice of peace the way my siblings did. And we put on a great show. We put on a great, you know, beautiful wedding. Everybody had a, a great time. However, I was miserable. And I just didn't tell anybody. I didn't know how to ask for help. I, in, in the way that I was raised, we put on a good appearance, but we didn't have much, many coping mechanisms. So anytime I was upset or anytime I, I felt hurt or I felt down, I didn't know how to cope with it. And that spiraled into a major problem later on in my life. I also was too prideful, and I didn't know how to ask for help. So I just figured we would get married, things would get better, we'd have kids, things would get better, and you know, we'd live happily, married, uh, happily ever after. It turned into a nightmare. We were on our honeymoon in you know, beautiful St. Lucia. Everything should have been, you know, perfect and he drank so excessively and I remember saying something about him drinking and he hit me and I was too prideful to ask for help I should have gotten on a plane and gone home I should have never married him in the first place but you know, all my friends were getting married all my friends were getting pretty rings and having pretty weddings so I wanted to just go with the flow like everybody else we continued the honeymoon it was Good and bad, good and bad, like the relationship. We came home to Philadelphia to continue our life. And for about a year, the relationship went on like that. I had a car accident, and I went to the doctor, and he put me on Vicodin. And I'll never forget the first time I took Vicodin, I was in my office working, and I got this feeling of euphoria, and... I could get all my work done. I was productive on the phone. I was productive with everything I needed to get done. And I wanted to feel like that for the rest of my life. Nothing else mattered. I didn't have any physical pain. But more importantly, I didn't have any emotional pain. Everything just kind of fell away when I took those pills. And that continued for several years. At that time, um, this was in the early 2000s and you could go online and, and basically have a doctor's appointment over the phone and they would send you pills and they and they would come from Florida and they would send you a lot of pills by FedEx or UPS and it was like Christmas morning every day at my house where those pills would arrive and I would be ordering them for three four different sites I would be um, getting my actual prescriptions from my doctors and I would call them in early or tell them I lost prescriptions or any anything I could do to make sure I didn't run out of those pills. Because the withdrawal was bad, but 
but not having the energy that at that time the pills gave me, I didn't want to live without. And my life at home was so miserable that being high got me through. I, that marriage at that time, um, I had I had stopped drinking back then because he drank so much that it turned me off from drinking. So I, I completely just stopped and was just taking, well, not just, I was taking Vicodin and at that time we added Xanax to it um, because I couldn't sleep and I had anxiety. And because I'm an addict and because I don't know, I didn't know any different way to go about it at that point, I abused the Xanax and the Vicodin. And I justified it by by telling myself, at least I didn't drink. I also kept it very hidden. Nobody knew, not even my husband, who I lived with, knew that I was abusing these pills. I, I have no idea how I hid it from them, but at that time I was able to. Um, in 2007, I decided it was time to start a family. I did not talk to my husband about it. I did not ask how he felt about it. I had decided it was time, so I decided to stop taking the birth control pill. I was very, very sneaky and manipulative for many, many years. Um, I got pregnant very quickly. He was kind of on board for it or with me, and I had a miscarriage. He was not in any way, shape, or form supportive of that. Um, so I took a ton of painkillers to get through it. That happened six times in a row. I had six miscarriages in a row. I also had started having an affair at that time with a very dear friend of mine. My my, there's no justification and no reason for and no excuse for it, but I did it. I was in a very unhappy marriage, and one of my very dear friends was able to emotionally make me feel much better, emotionally make me feel wanted and special and beautiful. And so naturally I let that feed my own. and I let him make me feel good about myself and I also had a sexual affair with him. So after the sixth miscarriage when my husband and I got into a brutal fight and he looked at me and said, I'm glad you had all those miscarriages. You don't, you don't deserve to be a mother. My response and my drug-induced coma was, well, I'm glad I did too. I don't know if you were even the father. And for that, I have just about 20% hearing in my left ear because he didn't take too kindly that remark. Um, so that marriage in 2010, I couldn't take it anymore. I was in my own drug addiction, which no one knew about. I had this horrible, horribly abusive, physically, verbally abusive marriage. And the final time that he, he hit me, I told my parents, and they had known that the marriage was bad anyhow, um, and they helped me move out, and I moved into an apartment, which was great to get out of the marriage, but terrible for a drug addict. Um, I moved out. I was on my own. My father's cancer started to get worse, which was devastating to me. Um, my sister's marriage had also broken up. My niece had gotten sick. Um, my parents had now, even though my father was in the throes of, of his cancer, my parents split up. Um, my mom was involved with someone else. My own affair was 
was turning into something that I was starting to feel very, very used. So once I left my husband in 2010, I added drinking into the mix. So now I'm drinking. I'm taking copious amounts of pills. And I'm miserable. I'm so miserable. I, I had a nice sense of freedom from not being with my, my ex-husband. But um, inside, I was dying. I was, I was just dying. And that went on for a little while. And then I met a guy. And we started dating. Again, another big drinker. Um, so I was now drinking with him. I'm using pills with him. We're smoking pot together. We did cocaine. We, you know, I was living like I was back in my early 20s and had any care in the world. But I was also working with people you know, and helping work with their finances. And I should have been way more responsible. I found out a few months after I had started dating this guy that I was pregnant. And I had all but stopped my affair at that point. And we decided to move in together and get a house together. And we were going to have this baby together. And this this particular pregnancy was healthy. and we we during that pregnancy I was able to stop using. Um I I really wanted that baby. So I stopped using for nine months. I was no way, shape or form in recovery. I was just white knuckling it dry. And it's a shame to say it, but it's true. I didn't use during my pregnancy partly because I wanted my baby to be healthy. However, because I had suffered so many miscarriages throughout that pregnancy, I did not fully believe that this pregnancy would result in a healthy baby. I could not connect to the baby. I could not feel love for this baby. This was just, and I, it's, a, it's hard to explain it because I wanted this baby so badly. But I was as surprised as everybody else. Each ultrasound, he was healthy and he was growing. But the reason I didn't use mostly during that pregnancy is because nobody knew I was an addict. And I was so ashamed and so embarrassed of who I really was that if they found out that I was an addict, my whole cover was blown and the state was going to come in and take my baby from me should he be born at the right time and be born healthy and I couldn't suffer that embarrassment because in my active addiction it was all about me it wasn't even about the life of my unborn child it was still all about me I didn't know any different when my son was born I went through 37 hours of crazy labor I was petrified of having a c-section because um I was afraid of surgery and I hadn't taken painkillers now in, you know, seven, eight, nine months. And I didn't, I just didn't know. I didn't know it was going to happen. During the labor, they gave me a couple shots of morphine and that old feeling was back. That old opiate feeling was back. Then when it finally came down that it was going to be a C-section, you know, they give you an epidural, which is, you know, it doesn't, screw up your head the way that an opiate will, but it, it, it blocks the pain. After my son was born, they shot me up with Dilaudid. And I had never been in a, a needle 
or IV drug user. I swallowed my pills. I didn't know about crushing them. I didn't know about snorting them. I didn't know about smoking them. I always swallowed them, but I swallowed a lot of them. When they shot me up with the Dilaudid, the beast was back, and it was back pretty bad. Um, I looked forward more to them bringing me the next shot of Dilaudid than bringing me the baby. And I loved him, and I having him was the greatest miracle of my life to date but I wanted to have him while I was high. I wanted to have him while I was feeling that great feeling of the Dilaudid. Um, I put on a great show of the new mother. You know, as the family came, my boyfriend's parents came. This was their first grandchild. They were so happy. My mother, you know, and stepfather, my father, they just, this baby was a miracle. You know, after all those miscarriages, that terrible marriage, everything that had gone on to date, this baby was a true miracle. And I had him at almost 38 years old, so I was old to have a baby also. The doctor sent me home with a prescription for Percocet, and I didn't tell them that I was an addict. I didn't tell them I had a problem. I, I wasn't ready. I didn't know about recovery, and I sure didn't want to be in it. Um, I was, as far as I was concerned, I was allowed to use my pills again. And they sent me home with a prescription for the painkillers, and my boyfriend, you know, had his own prescription for drinking. So the first couple months that I was home with the baby, I was abusing the, the Percocet. I was getting them. Now I was getting them from some guys on the street that I knew that would sell them to me. Um, and he and my boyfriend was drinking a lot. And it took me about two and a half months in treatment to admit that at that time I wasn't a good mother. And the truth is I wasn't a good mother. I wasn't doing the things for that baby that I needed to do. I loved him. I loved him. I, I love him more than anything in the world. But love is not enough. It is not enough to love somebody. It is not enough to love yourself. It is not enough to love somebody else to be a clean and productive member of society. So loving him wasn't going to get me clean. And I knew I had a problem. I, I was well aware of it. Um, when my son was about a year old, I when, when my son was four months old, my father died. And my son and I, um, actually I need to backtrack. When my son was six weeks old, I went into congestive heart failure. And I thought I was going to die. And here I am with a six-week-old newborn. I am very sick. My boyfriend is very worthless. And my family all has their own life. So we stayed home. I got better. And then my father went very much downhill very quickly. Um, so my father passed away. I don't remember his funeral because I was that high. Um, my My family got concerned. However, my family's really good at sweeping things under the carpet and they chalked it up to I was tired, I had a newborn and maybe I took one or two too many Xanax or something. What they didn't know is I was stealing my father's pain medicine. A man with terminal cancer that's dying, I was stealing his pain medicine and when he died, the first thing I did was go through the pills to see what I could take before hospice threw them out. We had the funeral, we're Jewish, so we had the shiva, 
and I barely made it downstairs. And I was truly devastated that my father died, but because I didn't know how to deal with anything, I didn't know how to deal with pain or emotions, I kept myself as high as I possibly could so I didn't have to. About a month after my father passed away, um, I returned to work, but I was doing a terrible job. I was nodding off. I was not engaged with my clients. I was, quite quite honestly, I was an embarrassment to that company. And and I worked for my, my mother and her husband. Um, they let me go, told me to go home, be with the mother, get better. Or I'm sorry, go home, be a mother, be with my son, get better. They gave me a, a nice severance package. I had gotten a nice inheritance from my father. And I stayed home for a year. And I was out of my mind on pills. Was out of my mind on pills, home with a baby, in a ba- another bad relationship with an alcoholic. When my son was about 18 months old, I guess my son was about almost two years old, my boyfriend came to me and told me he had taken a DNA test and my he had taken a DNA test with my son and that he wasn't his father and shattered my world. And even though in the back of my mind I always thought that could be a possibility, I just medicated myself to a point where I didn't even have to think about it. And I let this man believe he was this child's father. He, I told him, I lied to him, told him it wasn't possible, that he needs to go to a lab and get a real DNA test, that this one from Walgreens isn't any good. So he goes to a lab and he gets another test. And again, same results, he's not the father. So we start fighting, we start arguing. He moves out. His whole family goes with him and completely leaves my son and and abandons his life. My family certainly wasn't happy with me. They were starting to have enough of me, but they didn't know that I had this secret problem. They didn't know that I was struggling with this addiction, and I didn't tell them. And now I'm alone with a baby, an almost two-year-old. I'm alone with him in this big house. I'm not working, but I have tons of money from the settlements. And I had put my son in daycare. So while he's in daycare during the day, I'm in bed high as a kite. If I if I wanted to list the ways that I put my son in danger during my active addiction, this would be a three-day podcast. It took a lot of therapy to admit that. Um he, I'm trying to think of the timeline. About the time after the boyfriend left and his family left, um, I was running out of money from my my severance package as a settlement, and I went back to work as a life insurance agent. As a life insurance agent, you can make quick commission very quickly. I don't know. That's not the right way to put it. You can make big commission very quickly. And... So I was working again, and I started off doing well, um, but not well enough to feed my habit and pay all the bills. So uh, at at the same time, a friend of mine, her husband had gotten sick and diagnosed with advanced pancreatic cancer. She asked me to help her with a GoFundMe account. And to make a long story short, I did the the account raised about $10,000. I gave her two. 
and the other $8,000 I used to, fuel, to feed my addiction. In my head, I, in my very sick head, I figured that I would go sell a few life insurance policies and pay her back, and she wouldn't know. But what we think in our active addiction and in our sick mind is never reality. So the money I took from, from my friend who was sick, I used to buy drugs. Because I used that to buy drugs, I wasn't going to work. And they called the police. I got arrested. It wasn't a quiet arrest because it was considered a cancer charity fund. It was all over the, the not just the local news, because I lived in Philadelphia, which is a, a huge city. It was on every news station. My mugshot was the leading story on every news station on TV, the newspapers, the radio, the Internet. And it was horrific. Thank you for listening to part one of this Far From Finished story. Don't forget to come back to hear the rest in part two of this real-life experience in recovery.